Christmas is a merry and glorious day. But what makes it so special? Is it the trees, the lights, the gifts? Is it our family feasts together? These things are all great and they add richness to Christmas. But what makes it so special? What empowers real merriment? Well, that... Amen, son. It is, it is uh, what comes from God in the message of Jesus, <clears throat> whom we celebrate on Christmas Day tomorrow. Today, I want to do something a little bit different than I have ever done or normally do. And uh, I want to present the message of Christmas in, <clears throat> in relation to uh, its, its whole message. You can think of me uh, with a white beard instead of a, a red and brown one. And think of me in a scene uh, next to the hearth, sitting with a, a, nice, a nice mug of, of eggnog. And I am uh, going to uh, continually use a picture, maybe not consistently so, because uh, I'm, not, I'm not a writer per se. <clears throat> but um, you can think of me um, with my grandchildren that I, I don't really know, that are from the other side of the family, and uh, who nonetheless uh, uh, need to hear the Christmas story, and they've never heard it before. So that's our setting, <clears throat> and that's where we're going to go today. The first thing that we'll do, I, I technically have three points. I'm going to talk about the context of the Christmas story, redemption in Christ, which is the Christmas story, and the hope um, that comes from the Christmas story. Popularly, if I'm speaking uh, you may have heard the Christmas story begin, or a Christmas story begin like this. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." <clears throat> but this is not the context of the Christmas story we speak of, and the main character is certainly not St. Nick, as, as great as he might be. The story we tell our children, and that I tell to you today, kids, is, is not a story of myth nor of popular commercial lore. Rather, <clears throat> if any of these tales are good at all, they reflect dimly the greater reality that I'd like to unfold for you this Christmas evening. Now, <clears throat> uh, I want you to picture first the Christmas story in the center um, as, a, as a play. But in order to get to this story that I'd like to tell, I have to tell you about three successive scenes that come before. Otherwise, you won't understand the message of the Christmas story. And so the, I want to unfold those <clears throat> for you. The, the first scene, as you can picture the Christmas story, <clears throat> is in fact the first scene of every story. It's, in fact, the first scene of history. History itself takes its form from this scene. We are told by a prophet of God named Moses in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a simple yet um, wonderful and, and vast uh, in terms of the implications of this statement, it's, it's a, a vast in its implications sort of statement. God created all things. And what I want to do to set up this first scene, because this is a big one, is to say what God has said 
concerning himself. He, in fact, created all things. But who is this God? And uh, what must we know about him in order to get to our Christmas story? Well, the, the first would be from a very important popular verse, which you probably know, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. In this story, the Christmas story, we must know that there is one and only one God. Um, All others who make that claim have something in common with us, namely that they are not God, uh, and if they uh, lift themselves up as such, they share a similar identity, namely that you and I both are part of the created order. The only one outside the created order is the creator, God himself. Now, I call your attention to this verse because God here calls not only his people in Israel, but he calls attention to the main purpose for why we ourselves are in the story. Now, this story will focus on another, that is Christ Jesus. But here it is said, you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That is with everything you've got. The one true God created us as a part of this story and for a purpose. The purpose of humanity is to be in knowing Uh, and true relationship with God himself. We get a foretaste of this or or a partial taste of what it means to know God by our, our, our human relationships one to another, whether wife or children or mother or father. And God created us for this deep and intimate relationship with himself. Now, thirdly, I must say something about, one more thing about God as we begin is that, Um, we call uh, God the divine being. He is similar to us in this matter because he is one being. He's a a God being. (laughs) And you are a human being. Uh, You are are one in that same way. But unlike us, God uh, is, his divine being is shared by three co-equal and co-eternal persons, which we call the Trinity. I wish I could give you an analogy, but there's no analogy uh, to God in this way. Uh, He is nothing like us. He is holy, 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 as we sang this morning. Let it just suffice to say that the Bible all over makes statements like this. Peter, one of the foremost apostles, usually known for putting his foot in his mouth, had this to write to the churches of his day, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. God is only one living in true God, but he is also known to us by his relationships with himself, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the the bedrock foundation of, of who God is, and it is the foundation of any delightful fellowship you can have with him. He is not nebulous and unknown. He is is concrete and real more than 
we are, and this is where our comforting dependence must lie. <clears throat> that's what you must know. But because that's all words beforehand, here's the thing that I want you to remember. The first scene, God created, this God created the heavens and the earth, meaning he created simply all things. And God does so in a way as a workman. He labors for six days, laying out the pattern of creation and resting on the seventh day. During those six days, God fills the heavens with birds. He fills the seas with swarms of fish. He fills the land with beasts who roam and swing in the trees. And he makes all those creepy crawlies that you don't want on you. God made all of these things. But then on the sixth day, the last day, God crowns his world with a unique creature. The prophet Moses again says in Genesis 1, 27 through 31, these words, <clears throat> which is where we find our place yet again in the story. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruits. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In this scene, we see that God makes man differently, uniquely in his image as a sort of ruler over all of creation, over all the beasts and birds. <clears throat> what does it mean to be in God's image? Each and every single one of us has been made in such a way to reflect God, that is his moral character, his truthfulness, his rulership over creation. In that way, we are sort of like ambassadors on earth doing God's will. We are his servants. Now, I, I hope you heard in these basic commands, children, uh, that God blessed his people. They are to have enjoyment in being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and being workers in it. <clears throat> and I hope you heard something else which may strike you that God said after creating all things that it is very good. Kids, if we were to stop the story here, does that make sense to you? Very good. <clears throat> it seems that in our world today, and yes, in our very lives, all the world is not very good. How did we get here? Why? Is it so? Well, the second scene explains this. There's three of them, remember. God, in the beginning, created a garden. And he set servant man, uh, first man, Adam, to guard it and to work it. And he even gave him a lovely wife as a helper to assist him with the work that God had given them both to do. 
God is a good Lord. He's a good master. Uh, maybe you have a good, a good boss or a good mommy and daddy as your authority. <clears throat> but God is good, and so he gives his law to man to guide him, to uh, uh, constrain his steps. Now, God here in this passage we just saw before opens a very, very wide door to the enjoyment of the whole world. <clears throat> but he is in this chapter 2, which we didn't read yet. God has given one prohibition, said, you may not do one thing. Listen to these words. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God said to man saying, or commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. This is the severe and evil, or um, this is the uh, severe consequence of breaking God's law. God has made us for himself. He's made us to be in relation to himself, to glorify him, and he's put constraints on and uh, a law guiding our actions. At this one Word. Now picture yourself. This is where I really start to use the, the scene that I set out. Uh, one of the little ones of the family on the carpet said, wait, wait, Grandpa, you mean die like, like the way Grandma did last year? Yes, Sonny. That's how we got here. That's why Grandma died. You see, Adam and Eve in the beginning are our first parents. They are related to us. They are a part of our one human family. And because of this event, we all will eventually die. And then the little one asks, but what happened? Well, on that dreadful day in the garden, we meet a dragon who had evil in his heart. It was an angel of God who worked through a serpent known as Satan. And he led our first parents, Adam and Eve, dreadfully astray. He tempted them with the forbidden fruit saying, "Um, in the day that you eat of it, you shall not surely die. He impugned God. He said God was wrong. And you can hear a little one asking if you're telling this story to them, do they do it? (laughs) Even though we know the answer. Yes, the woman ate of the tree and then took it with her husband who was with her. And on this day, when they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of their God. But when they encountered the Lord, he drew them out like a father from their hiding place, though their faces were filled with shame. He, like a good father, listened to Adam and Eve and said, what have you done? But as you know, when uh, you young ones hit your brother or sister, or you argue, <clears throat> your mommy and daddy already know what you have done. And, and so God listens to him, to them as a good father. And you know what they do? They, they say, he did it. She did it. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> they blame one another. <clears throat> but I ask kids, Freddie, Isaiah, who's, who's responsible for our sins? Who's responsible for us 
and what we do wrong. Is it the other sibling? It's us. Certainly, it's our problem. It is true that others may push us in the wrong direction, but God will hold us responsible for doing what is right and what is good and to do it so perfectly. Now, here they stand. They had broken God's law. They knew his command that in the day that they eat of it, they shall certainly die. Now the third scene, and you can hear uh, uh, another child say, don't, don't move on, Grandpa. What, did, they, did they die as God said? Remember, I want you to think of this as a play on the stage. So the third scene stops, the lights go out, there's a change of scene, but how do you feel? What do you think about these in their, in their sin against God? What do you think about these in the wrongdoing? What should God do? Should they suffer for their sins? <clears throat> As the third scene begins, son, we see the same scene, uh, yet it's enlarged. There is God cursing Adam and Eve with their punishment, <clears throat> where he says these words, for you are dust and to dust you shall return and other sorts of things. But God, in the midst of the curse, which we expect, God is a just God. He punishes sin. But God here does something unexpected. God, in the midst of punishment, does something wonderful. Something amazing. At this point, all the children are listening intently. The little ones are scooting closer on the carpet. The older ones are leaning closer in their chairs. And the other room, mom and dad, eye one another silently and look over at grandpa who winks and he presses on. Kids, in the midst of this punishment that God announced, the unexpected is that God made a promise. He makes a promise that one day our first parents will have a son. And that son would be one who stomps the dragon into the dust. You see, what happened when man sinned is that the whole world began to fall apart, began to unravel like a, like a ball of yarn. Not only would they one day die, but some of their very own children would walk away from God's family completely, would not know him whatsoever. One of his children, in fact, killed his brother. One of them rose up and slew his brother. <clears throat> and the earth would soon as Cain. And one, um, the earth soon would be filled with violence. Though God blessed them in the beginning and asked them as his servants to fill the world with that blessing, life, joy, peace, harmony with God and man. Instead, <clears throat> everything was turned upside down. Black was white, right was wrong. Instead of walking with God and being full of joy, 
The earth was filled with pain and sorrow, was filled with sin and misery. It looked like at this point in the story and through lots of the story before we come right in one moment to what we celebrate at Christmas, the Christmas story, it looked like for much of history, the dragon was ruling the world and he would win. His destructive plan was succeeding. Many sinned and loved it. Many went down to their own demise, never knowing God. The promise of God, however, remained to crush the source of sadness, to restore and save the world which seemed holy and completely lost. Adam and Eve soon here in chapter 3 turned from their sin and walked with God. Their son Abel walked in the right way. Also, we are told about Enoch, the seventh son from Adam, was a prophet and walked with God, but he was not yet the promised son. And although the world seemed dark, there remained a small yet burning flicker of flame of of God's faithfulness in, in the heart of few. The promise, as it were, you can think of the whole world being dark, yet there is a flicker of hope in the promise of God. Now I've kept you in suspense, children, for long enough. And we must ask, well, if, did God keep his promises? <clears throat> and not only does God make the one promise in the beginning, but throughout all of the history of the world up until the birth of Christ, and even for things after, God keeps making promises. And he even chose a particular family so that we know who to look for and what family to, to uh, look to to focus all of God's promises uh, about his, the special son, the special one to come. That is this one who would eventually be called the Messiah or as we usually say, the Christ. We're told that he would one day be a king and he would rule over God's people and not only God's people, but all of the world. There's one promise that I do want you to know before we hit the Christmas story. It's probably my favorite promise in the Old Testament. That is Isaiah, a prophet called by God to speak to the children of Abraham called Israel in another very bleak and bad situation. Israel in the face of judgment, similarly to Adam and Eve, when all hope is nearly lost, make some of the brightest glowing promises in all the Bible. This one you might know. It says, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Yahweh, God, the God in the beginning, by his promises, had said that he himself 
will see to it that he will accomplish these things. What we learn over the course of history, or if, if you look over your own life, man, and even the most faithful people, Abraham, Moses, David, and I could name more, amidst their best efforts, are not up to the task. We cannot do the work of this promised one, this chosen Messiah. Grandpa, are we to the Christmas story yet? We're right there. We've made it. Now listen, one day, God visited his people with an angel, and he visited a woman named Mary. Listen to how the Christmas story begins. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, that is God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, this son is uh, no ordinary son. And can you imagine, for one of God's people to know uh, uh, some of the famous promises, one of which I told you that he would be a king forever and ever, that This woman was told, and that is your son. What a marvel of a story. She would bear the one who is to throw down the serpent, the dragon of old, and restore the world. This promise that had come to Adam thousands of years before. But as you can see, this is no ordinary child. He has no earthly father. And John... Uh, Another uh, disciple of Jesus tells us very helpfully who this son is. He says, in the beginning, that is, in the beginning of the world, before the beginning, was the Word, uh, whom we know as Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not uh, anything that made that was made, meaning he made all things and he himself was not made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. He is the burning flame of God's promises. He is what it pointed to. We are also told that this word who always was God and who existed with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, this one born on Christmas Day is the one and only God. He is what, what we say is the eternal son. The reason we celebrate is because God himself was fulfilling all of his promises and the eternal God who never had a beginning began. The one uncreated was created as a little baby boy in the womb of the virgin and was born on that fateful day. <clears throat> Your mommy and daddy told me that you all had have gone around and visited some of the glorious Christmas lights and displays during this Christmas season. Have you seen this display of what looks like a, a animal stable, animal stall, and maybe two people in a, a manger, a basket, as you see here? Oh yeah, Grandpa, we have. Well, that is the Christmas story. This is what we call the incarnation. This is God becoming one of us, becoming like us. This is the beginning of it all. The family of the earth, not just one family, but all of earth received a baby boy that changes history. The meaning of these words in John and Luke is that God became man. Paul tells us, which is one of Jesus' apostles, that Jesus is the eternal son who humbled himself in this way, that is by becoming human. That's greatly humbling. And not only that, he is born in a manger bed. This makes him 100% God and 100% man, and his name is Jesus. Now, This is a glorious and huge truth I can hear uh, and you can hear. Why did he do that, Grandpa? Not knowing how to make the connection. Why does God become man? Well, we ourselves need a savior. We need a redeemer. The best of us, as we have seen, are broken And we need someone to pick up what has been broken. God the Son has become a new kind of Adam. You remember Adam in the beginning who failed. We need a second Adam who can do what the first Adam failed to do. The scriptures say in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, the law that was broken to redeem those who were under the law, that is, those who had broken the law and were under its consequences so that they might receive adoption as sons. You see, the story of of Christmas is a story about becoming family. It's a story about the restoration of a broken family. Mankind in this way, had walked away from the family and become utterly lost, had no idea how to get back again. In fact, their sins kept them from finding this out, of of returning. And even those who had an inkling that they need to be made right with the family couldn't pay to fix the mistake. Thus, 
Therefore, Jesus, the Son of God, became man. He came to live obedient to God without failure. And this is what he did. Do you know what it's called to live perfectly? Freddie, do you know what it's called to live perfectly? Uh, No. No, all the children shook their heads together. (laughs) Jesus obeyed God perfectly. And this is called a Bible term, righteousness. It's what we can't do. So how does that fix the problem of our sin? One of the older boys asked with a sharp tone and a frustrated expression. For the moment, he was not persuaded by grandpa's story. Well, it doesn't fix the problem, grandpa said, to which he came uh, in, to which came in reply. Well, then what fixes the problem? Jesus had to do two things. Both obey God where Adam failed. This is what God requires of his people made in his image. We are his servants and he is our good master. So Jesus has to do all of what is right. And secondly, he has to pay for the penalty for man's disobedience, which had not yet come due fully. Kids, the punishment of physical death, of which I've lost grandma last year, is terrible and horrendous. It's truly awful. But it doesn't satisfy the justice of God. It doesn't satisfy the penalty fully. Hebrews, another book of the Bible, tells us, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Jesus himself teaches us what this means, namely that there will be a final judgment for all peoples and those who are not found to be righteous perfectly in and of themselves or in Christ Jesus somehow will go away to eternal punishment. Now think of a little squeaky voice. What does Jesus do to take away our punishment? One of the little ones said, while the family looked on with surprise, Grandpa, with a secret energy, quickly quoted from memory a couple Bible verses. God, the eternal son, took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in doing so, kids... Jesus, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The house sat still, no creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Grandpa, for a moment, took a long sip of his eggnog, slurping as as he did, pausing to build suspense. Would you like to hear the end of the story? All heads shook vigorously this time. Now, mom and dad even made their way to the couch from the kitchen to hear the rest of the story of which they knew in the past. What do you think happened to Jesus? hmm? The son of God who came down from heaven, came down to live, to die for his people. But you know what's different about Jesus is that he didn't stay in the grave. 
He came not only to live for us and to pay for our penalty. He came to rescue us from the problem that has never been conquered and will never be conquered by us. He didn't come to fall prey to it. He didn't come to be conquered by it as we were. He did not come to stay in the grave. In fact, the Bible says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is all of them. The plan of God in Jesus was accomplished in his rising from the dead. He defeats death. This means that he has earned what Adam did not earn. He actually earned eternal life in the place of man. Here, Grandpa had done what he had done all along and asked comprehension questions like a good grandpa. Do you remember how Adam was supposed to rule the world? Or do you recall the angel who spoke to Mary, how he said that he would have a kingdom without end? this one who rose from the dead. Some of the children pretended to remember since grandpa had told a long story and they had certainly forgotten. Yeah, yeah, we remember that. The older boy with the sharp tone earlier now said, is that what Christmas is about? Grandpa with a twinkle in his eye said, yes, son, that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about how Jesus entered and has fulfilled all the promises of God. He has come to end the brokenness of this world to conquer the dragon who had the power of sin and death. It's the story of how God became us so that he might die for us, how he might resurrect for us and become the king of salvation. A broken world needs a king of salvation, doesn't it? A broken world that is ruled by a dragon needs to be freed from the dragon, doesn't it? He has come and we celebrate his birth because he was born to restore it all. In the midst of the darkness, he shines today in this story for the glory of God's grace. See, God delights not in in punishment alone, in justice He's good to do so, but he also delights in being a merciful father, a forgiving father. The story of Christmas is that God the Father has given the greatest gift. You may have some wonderful ones uh, this Christmas day, but the greatest of all gifts is given by God himself. That is the gift of salvation in his son. This son who has now not only been raised, We have seen he has ascended. He has been seated at the right hand. He is reigning currently. And he makes a proclamation, a kingly decree. You know what it is? He tells those who have understood and heard the story and who are filled with joy for the story to carry around a personal scroll and read something of a decree that is, Uh, This story is to be held with repentance. It is uh, one for the forgiveness of sins that's proclaimed in his name to all nations. God had a people uh, once 
uh, called Israel, and that people has been expanded to include all nations. And you may be a part of God's family. You may have the dragon slayed for you and not end up in his fate. <clears throat> now, there will be one day, and there is a day already, where it has come to pass that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> now, God requires of you children to diligently seek him while he can be found. Otherwise, we go the way of the dragon, of which his kingdom is coming to an end. It will be shortly put away because God's kingdom is one that fixes everything. No more suffering, no more sin, no more death anymore. Only the glory of God, the way that it ought to be in the world, renewed and restored. This is the good news of Christmas that makes us truly merry. That is God's king, the Lord Jesus is reigning now. Those of us who know the king see our sin and know that it's worthy of punishment. And yet God, Father, Son, and Spirit is able, has made a way for pardon. And this is the gift. <clears throat> it is through the power of the Spirit alone, by faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, that we are able to turn from a former life, an estrangement of the family, earthly family uh, of God, and have eternal life in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the most glorious story. Jesus puts down the dragon. He makes the human family whole again. It is he who brings joy to the world a little at a time and forever and ever. He restores us to God for fellowship and for service. In light of these things, let us be merry and let us pray. Heavenly Father,